We, um, we are beginning our Advent celebration this morning. One of the purposes behind this is so that Christmas doesn't just become a holiday that we get to and we celebrate a day of it and um, it's dreaded throughout the season and it's all about the, the shopping and the headache and whether or not we're going to have enough money to do this or do that. And Advent hopefully is a time that we can come together as Christians and remind ourselves of what the purpose of this season is about. The word Advent is a word that actually means coming. It means arrival. And so it is a time that we prepare our hearts to celebrate His first coming and what that means to us. And at the same time, it is a time in which we prepare our hearts to receive Him at His second coming. I don't know if you know this or not, but the children of God that were the supposed children of God of that time when He came the first time, they didn't greet Him. They weren't ready for Him. The fact of the matter is, the Bible tells us that many of them were troubled when they heard that He was here. And so, I want to make sure that as the children of God now, that we are preparing our hearts so that when He returns, because He is going to return, and when He returns, it is my prayer that our hearts will not be troubled. Our hearts will be rejoicing because we've been waiting. We've been expecting this. And so this season is a time in which we can do both. Remember, Advent means coming or arrival. And whether you're talking about His first coming and His first arrival, or we were talking about His second coming and His second arrival, the season of Advent, everything we do is focused around preparing our hearts for both of those. To celebrate His first coming and what it means. And to receive Him joyfully in His second coming. Some of the things that we do, we'll start uh, this Wednesday night. Again, as Sean mentioned, I would appreciate anybody that is not partaking in bingo. I don't want to take anybody away from that. We will have people to, to help with this. But if you are not partaking in bingo and you can climb a ladder or maybe you can just hang a wreath or something, um, I would love to have your help Wednesday night at 6.30. We will just have a prayer that we open with and we'll start decorating the church. And part of that purpose is, is that all of our decorations that we do is pointing us toward Christ. Now, I'm not anti... Well, yeah, I am. <clears throat> yeah, I am. I believe that our decorations in our homes are to let the world know that this is what I'm celebrating. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm not against a snowman. Frosty's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Me and Frosty are good like that. So I'm not against things like that, but at the same time, I do believe that as Christians, we ought to try to focus our decorations and the things we do toward things that let the world know that this is what my heart celebrates at this time. And so I want to do that as a church. And one of the ways we do that is we put up Jesus trees. Uh, they're Christmas trees, they're evergreen trees, they're artificial, they're pre-lit, they have lights, but everything that we put on them are decorations that the children or even the adults make in Sunday school classes that help point everybody that looks at that tree to the birth of Christ and to what Jesus is to us and this is what we celebrate. So for the Sunday school teachers that are here this morning, some of you have already started and that's good. If you haven't, next Sunday 
Uh, the trees will be up, and I would love for y'all to be prepared at this time for the children to come up and, um, and put their decorations on the tree. And we'll probably ask them what the decorations mean and see what they learned in Sunday school. Probably get a few laughs out of that, I'm sure. But um, it's a good time. Um, and then the lights, Jesus is the light of the world, the evergreen. I mean, everything that we do points toward eternal life or points toward Christ and Him being our Redeemer in some way or another. And so that's what Advent is about. Another thing we do is we, we focus our messages and our teachings toward preparing your hearts to celebrate His first coming and to prepare for His second coming. And we incorporate the youth and the children into this and we have them to come and read a scripture. And you usually go along with what I'm preaching. And then we'll have them light one of the Advent candles. If you're not familiar with the Advent candles, I could give you the tradition of it. Don't worry about that. Here's the point. The colors represent the royalty of Christ, the love of Christ, the purity of Christ. They, they represent something about Christ in some way. And all we do is we light a candle each week as we anticipate and we eagerly wait His coming. And then on the last Sunday before Christmas, we will light our Christ candle, which is the center, center candle, to remind us that He's not just coming, He came. He came. He fulfilled every promise that God ever made to us. And we celebrate that and we look at those promises. And so this morning in... In light of that, I want to ask Ms. Vanessa Dickey if she would come. And if she would, to um, she's going to read Matthew chapter 1, and she's just going to read verse 1, and then we'll give you the rest of it, um, after, it was, after she gets done. Yes, ma'am, that's it, just that verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, if you would, can you strike a match? Can I do it? <laughs> Are you scared? Oh, there's so many people here, she said. Well, I wouldn't embarrass sure, you for nothing, sure. I promise. But if I light something else on fire. You can light one of those. That purple one out there is fine. That'll be fine. Whichever one you pick. Thank you very much. Good job, Vanessa. Y'all give her a hand. She was so nervous. <clears throat> <laughs> Good job, Vanessa. And we are going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 1 this morning, in case you didn't figure that out. <clears throat> I'm sorry. James and Felicia are here with the babies. And you think those babies are more important than what I'm fixing to do? I think they would say they are. So James, if you would, y'all want to show them off real quick? This is Keegan and Caitlin. Keegan and Caitlin Griggs. Y'all stand up and show them off. Amen. Those are the answers to a lot of prayers right there. And um, I don't think I have ever in my life met a daddy more excited or more proud Never. I'm telling you, Snapchat closed down. It crashed. It crashed because of James Griggs. We are very happy for them and, and so thankful that God has blessed them with these beautiful gifts. And um, we look forward to what God is going to do with them for the rest of, these, for the rest of their lives. What's that? 
Children's church. All right. Children's church. See, I'm out of practice, guys. I am out of practice. Children's church. Thank you, Fagan. I'd have forgot all about it. I would have. Yes, sir, I would have. Bye. She acts like she's happy to get out of here. Why? Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fagan has been putting up with Francis for 46 years today. And um, so Fagan, Fagan needs a lot of prayers, but we are... We are um, <laughs> they are. They're celebrating 46 years of marriage, and, um, and, and we are thankful, thankful that God has um, blessed them the way that He has over these years. Is there anything else that I have forgotten this morning? All right. If not, Matthew chapter 1. Vanessa read to you verse 1 because that's the verse I want you to pay close attention to. There are other genealogies of Christ in the Bible, but they don't read the same. And there have been many scholars that have looked at this and said, well, the Bible contradicts itself because this genealogy says this and this one says this. And I want you to understand something. They had a purpose for why they named the names that they did and why they went the route that they did. This morning we're just going to focus on Matthew's genealogy. So beginning in verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So first thing I want you to notice, Matthew's book is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And everything that he writes from here on out is going to be proving these points. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Y'all tracking with me here? All right. <clears throat> and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Je Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Elizar, and Elizar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. We'll finish up with this verse. So all the generations from Abraham to David 
were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You can be seated. And as you're seated, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, before we go any further, we want to come and just remind ourselves that, Lord, this is your word. Lord, I can't make it speak. I can't add any power to it. I can't do anything with it. It's only your Holy Spirit that uses this sword to cut to the deepest parts of us and, and speak to the parts that we need spoken to. Father, I come to you right now and I ask you that you would do that this morning. Father, we humble ourselves and we recognize that we can do nothing without you. God, we need you. And Father, we ask you that you would teach this lesson this morning. We ask that you would have control of this service and that everything that is said would be your word. And Father, I pray that we leave here today edified and ready to celebrate your coming and to prepare to receive you again at your second coming. Father, help us to, to, to achieve that this morning. Father, we love you. Forgive us where we fail you, but thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said earlier, four score and seven years ago before the pulpit was taken hostage by Brother Nick for his series in the book of Psalms. What? Nick didn't preach from Psalms? I'm sorry thought Nick preached from Psalms. <clears throat> so, y'all let Nick know that I did enjoy his sermon series on the book of Romans. The book of Romans, yes. I'm sure a lot of people got a lot of good stuff out of that. <clears throat> but anyway, y'all don't tell Nick yet. He picks on me and I hope y'all know that I like to come up here and pick on him and we joke together about this stuff, but... Um, Nick did a fantastic job, and, and I'm excited to start the Advent season today with this genealogy. I don't want you to get too bored, though, because ancestry can be pretty boring. The truth of the matter... I got an amen on that one. The truth of the matter is, ancestry, unless it is your own and unless you want to know about it, most of the time you find it in the Bible and you read through it and... If you're like most of us, you get to certain names you can't pronounce and go, Billy Bob said, and Billy Bob was the son of Jimmy John, and Jimmy John, was, you just start making up names. But the truth of the matter is, uh, as I think Nick or Sean or somebody I've heard say, there is no filler. There's nothing put in the Scripture that is there just for the purpose of taking up space, just so that the book will be a little bit longer. That's not the way the Bible is written. Every word is inspired. And so what I want you to understand is that when we read things like this, God has a purpose in giving us this through Matthew. You need to understand that when you come to this, even though ancestry is boring, we need to be careful that we don't just get bored and our minds drift off somewhere else, that we understand God is telling us something. God has something He wants to teach us in this genealogy. In ancestry, you know, <clears throat> ancestry is something that everybody wants to know who they belong to, right? Everybody wants to know where they come from. As a matter of fact, you ask one person that doesn't know where they came from, and they'll tell you one of their greatest desires is to do what? Find out where they came from. And today we actually have 
things like Ancestry.com, I got on it for a little while. And even though I know where I came from for the most part, I got on it and began to fill out all the information and track my, um, all the little leaves that would come up. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And I'd fill in the blanks and I was building my family tree. And, and, and I enjoyed that. I did it for quite some time. And then even when I got a little tired of it, I kept paying for it and let my mom keep building it and keep growing on it. And so it went for over a year that I paid for this thing um, just to know where I came from. It was something that I wanted to know. And so for me, that wasn't boring. But for you, if I were to stand up here and tell you that I am the son of so-and-so and he is the son of so-and-so and I were to go down my genealogy after a few names, you'd get bored and I'd lose you and you'd be off in the distance somewhere. But, you know, it's funny because ancestry is important. And we all know it's important. Every one of us wants to know where we come from, who we belong to, where we belong. And so it's something that is in us that we want to know these things. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but it is said from the University of Michigan, an anthropologist there, I I don't know her name, but their study said that ancestry is the second most popular hobby in America. The second most popular hobby in America. It is the, a multi-billion dollar industry. Whenever they started Ancestry.com, and I'm not sure if it was the website that started in 2013 or the DNA. Y'all have heard of the at-home DNA test? All right. Whether it was the at-home DNA test or the website itself, I'm not sure. But one of them started in 2013. And since that time, there have been over, let me see if I can find it, 26 million people since 2013 that have taken the at-home DNA test just to find out who they are. That's just since 2013. If the trend continues, they believe that by 2021, over 100 million people will have taken an at-home DNA test just to find out where they come from, just to find out who they are. I mean, let's just praise God for a minute. That's how we found out Elizabeth Warren descended from Pocahontas, right? I'm just saying. So, you know, this is, this is good information to get. We need to know these things. But it's only exciting if it is your own. I'm just joking, y'all. I'm not trying to throw politics in here. I don't know where you stand. I don't like none of them. I'm just going to say it. But, um, but, uh, but, but it is a joke. But as I said before, it's exciting when it's your own genealogy, not so much when it's someone else's, unless the descendants are of some importance. Unless you're connected, you find out you're connected to the uh, king of England or something, or you find out that you were connected to somebody that that was important, then all of a sudden it becomes exciting. You know, Matthew here, he traces Jesus' lineage back to David. He traces it back to Abraham. Those are the first two things that he brings out. Now, how many of you know that there were people before David and people before Abraham? Luke traces the same genealogy all the way back past Abraham, and he goes all the way to Adam, and then he goes even further from Adam to the Son of God. In Luke chapter 3, verse 38, look at the end of the genealogy that Luke does. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and finally, the son of God. And so Matthew don't even trace back as far as Luke goes. Luke goes all the way to God. John takes and stretches the imagination even further. I didn't give him this scripture, but in how many of you know how the Gospel of John starts out? In the beginning was the 
And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. We all got it wrong on that one. But here's, here's the point. He stretches the people's minds back to help them understand that nothing was made without Him that was made. That tells you that not only was Jesus the Son of God, but Jesus was also God, the Creator of all things. And so no matter which gospel you go to, they help you trace back the genealogy of Jesus because they want you to understand there are some important things that you need to know from where Jesus descends. But Matthew, he doesn't go that far back. He takes off, and at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he makes sure that we understand that Jesus is the son of David, and Jesus is the son of Abraham. And now he's going to go forward in time and track all the way up to Joseph's dad. And when he gets to Joseph's dad, then he goes into Jesus was supposedly his son. And so why did Matthew start with David and Abraham instead of doing like Luke did, going all the way past them, plumb up to God, or doing like John did and going past that all the way to the fact that he was here before anything else was ever created. Matter of fact, he created all things. Why, why did Matthew start with this point right here? And so today, my Advent message, the first sermon, I'm going to do a series... Not on Psalms, but I am going to do a series. And this series is going to be The People of Christmas. Every week we're going to look at the people of Christmas and we're going to try to figure out what can we learn about Christ? What can we learn about God? What can we learn about ourselves from the people of Christmas? Matthew begins by letting us know that this book, look what he says again in verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants you to understand that everything that he's writing in this book is going to stem from the fact that Jesus is the son of David and He is the son of Abraham. Well, why is that important? Why didn't he track somewhere else? Why didn't he say Jesus is the son of Adam? And let's go from Adam and go down. Well, you need to understand that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And the Jews are expecting a particular Messiah. They're, they're expecting a king of the Jews. They're expecting a seed of Abraham, an offspring of Abraham. And to understand that they were expecting someone, I want to take you back and show you the promises. In uh, Genesis chapter 12, go with me there. You might remember, as you turn into Genesis chapter 12, you might remember that <clears throat> the Bible is a book that answers four main questions in this life. Here's the purpose for the Bible. It answers four main questions for us. The first question it answers, where did we come from? How did we get here? And Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2 tells us this is how all things were made and this is the purpose that all things were made for. So you have the creation. How did we get here? The second question that's answered is what went wrong? Something's not right. Amen? 
Anybody figured out in this world yet that something is not right? Something is not right. And so the question we ask is, what happened? And in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible answers the question. This is what happened. Man fell from the grace of God. Man sinned against God and man fell. And then the next question we have answered is, um, what's God going to do about it? Are we just hopeless? Is this just where we are? And the answer to that is no, God is going to redeem us. And then the last question it answers is, is there any hope for the future? Is there any hope for this world? And that question is answered in Revelations, where we find out that God is going to restore all things. And so you have four sections to understand this Bible. You have the creation, how we got here. You have the fall, what went wrong. You have the redemption, what God is going to do about it. And then you have the restoration, what God is going to do with this creation after all of it is over and after His purpose is served. And all of those things are answered in this Bible. But in the process of Genesis 1 through Genesis chapter 3, we see the creation, we see the fall, but then we get the first glimpse of what God is going to do about the fall. You remember when uh, God was addressing the serpent? And most of you, if you have any Bible knowledge at all, you should remember this. He told the serpent, he said, Mary's offspring, not Mary, I'm sorry, but it is Mary, but Eve's offspring, her seed is going to crush your head. You are going to bruise his heel, but her offspring is going to crush your head. And then we see the first glimpse of how God is going to bring about this redemption because when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, right? But then when God saw them, He said, that's not going to work. You can't cover this up. And so what God does is He takes an animal that Adam had cared for. Remember, God paraded all the animals in front of Adam and Adam had to name each one of them, right? So all of these animals were personal to him. He cared for them. It was his job to make sure that they were took care of. And God goes, we don't know which one, probably a lamb as far as we know, but God goes and He takes one of these animals and He slays it. And He takes the skin from that animal and He covers them with that skin. And we first see the first example that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But then we also find out that the blood of animals can never take away sins. All it was was a picture of what God was going to do when Jesus finally came and He redeemed mankind. The blood of Jesus was the only blood that could ever be shed that could take away the sins of mankind. But yet God had them going through dramas and rehearsals year after year, killing these animals to show that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And every time they, they put the lamb on the altar and they shed its blood, it was God saying to all of His people, this is what I'm going to do to make your sin right with me. And that's all that they were doing. It wasn't that that animal was going to take their sins away. It didn't. It couldn't but they were trusting that God was going to provide. In the same way that today we look back and we trust that God has provided. They were looking forward saying, we trust that God is going to provide and we do this to portray what God is going to do. 
the same way you do with baptism today. When you go through the baptismal waters, the water does not wash your sins away. You can go in a wet center, uh, you can go in a dry center, come out the other side a wet center. The only difference was you got wet. That's it. But what it portrays for the one that puts their faith and trust in Jesus is that I have been buried in the death of Christ. It's a picture that you're painting. I have been buried with Christ's death. And I have been, I have been risen from the dead to walk in the newness of life that He is giving me. And so God is all about pictures. That's what He was doing back then with the animals. He's always gave us dramas to live out spiritual realities. We can't see them physically, but He gives us physical things to actually live them out. And so we have been given glimpses of this redemption all throughout the Old Testament. No matter where you read, every story that you read, it was for the purpose of showing you this is what Jesus is going to do. When you read David and Goliath, you're not David. You know that, right? Now we often like to get up here and preach, you've got to conquer your giants. And with just a sling and a stone, you can do this. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, we need a David. We need a David because we are the army that's sitting back on the hill, trembling at Goliath because we don't know what to do. And we can't defeat him. And so when God gives us the story of David, He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up a king. I'm going to raise up somebody that to you just looked like a shepherd boy. To you looked like a nobody. But I'm going to raise him up. And with one blow, he's going to take out the enemy. And he's going to cut his head off completely. And so when you read the Bible, you need to read it in light of the fact that all of it is about God saying to you, this is what I'm going to do when Christ comes. This is how I'm going to redeem you. This is how we were created. This is how it got to be the way that it is. This is what I'm going to do about it. And then this is what it's going to look like whenever I come back and I restore all things and make all things new. That's the Bible. And that's how you read the Bible. And so in light of that, let's look at just two of the promises that God gave that shows us this is what God is going to do. Genesis chapter 12, as I told you, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> 1 through 3. Now the Lord God said to Abram... You need to understand that before Abram became Abraham, he was just Abram. The Lord God said to Abram, Go out from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And notice this next part. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The final end of that promise is that through Abraham's seed, guess what's going to happen? The entire world is going to be blessed because of what God does through a seedless Abraham. Now skip down to verse 7 with me to see where he opens this up just a little bit more. Because when you read the Bible, you also need to read it in light of the fact that God is always unfolding His plan. How many of you know that if God gave you everything that He was going to do at one time, you couldn't take it, you couldn't understand it, and you wouldn't believe it? 
And so what God does is He unfolds His plan, little bit by little bit. And so He unfolds a little bit more for Abraham in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. But he's not talking about just to the offspring of the children of Abraham, but to a particular offspring. Go with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 to see what I'm talking about. Because Paul spells it out for us a little bit more. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Listen closely. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is the Christ. And so all of this time, ever since the beginning of the fall, you remember he was speaking to the serpent and he told the serpent, when her seed gets here, When her seed gets here, the one that is coming to redeem mankind, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And do you remember what happened? I didn't give Nathan this verse, but do you remember what happened whenever Cain killed Abel, or whenever, I'm sorry, before that. Whenever whenever Eve got pregnant with Cain or Abel, I can't remember which one. I think it's Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Let me see if I can find that for you, because you need to see this. It is. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Look at this. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And this is what she said. This is a quote from Eve. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Why not a woman? Is a man more important than a woman? Is a man greater than a woman? No. The Bible says that God made them both, male and female. He made them in the image of God. But here's what Eve was expecting. She knew that it was through her male offspring that there was going to come one that's going to redeem them from their sin, make them right with God, and crush this serpent's head. And when she got a man as a child, her hope was, this is the one. This is the one God promised. And every Jewish woman from here on out that has become pregnant has had the same hope. Go through and read the other Jewish women that got pregnant and they were praying and when it come out a man, most of them said the same thing. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Because every Jewish woman was hoping for the same thing. They're hoping that this is the one that is going to crush the serpent's head and this is the one that is going to redeem us. So ever since the beginning, they've been waiting on this promised child. But the promise didn't really open up so that people understood what it was until God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you an offspring and this offspring is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then it opened up a little bit more whenever he gave the promise to David. Go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. This is God's promise to David. 
Remember, keep in mind here, we're still coming from why did Matthew choose to open up his genealogy with Jesus being the son of David and the son of Abraham. And remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience who every woman has been waiting on this male child and every man wanted... Did, did every Jewish man want sons or did he want daughters? Because he's got the same hope. He's waiting on the same thing. And so, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, <clears throat> beginning in verse 12, this is God's promise to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for what? Forever. Now keep in mind, when God gives a promise, He is speaking to Abraham and David in the present. So this is also going to be a promise that they're going to get in the present. Alright? Somebody's alarm going off out there. Don't let me lose you. So you've got this present promise that's going to come to pass, but then there are future promises that we have to look at this as well. So when He says that, I'm going to raise up a king from your own body. But Solomon is not going to last forever. And so we know that this promise extends past Solomon. But keep reading in verse 13, or I'm sorry, verse 14. <clears throat> I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, now again, don't get confused here because he is talking about Solomon too, but not just Solomon. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And then look what he says next. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now the vision further opens up, but here's the point that you need to see. You need to understand that God promised Abraham, you are going to have a particular offspring that is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then He promised David, you are going to have a particular offspring from your body that is going to be a king forever. This kingdom will be steadfast and sure for all eternity. And so we're waiting on those two promises to be fulfilled if we're Jews in Matthew's time. And so when Matthew opens up his gospel and he says, this book is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and who is the son of Abraham. We'll get it right here in just a minute. Hold on. I'd be able to sing a song to it. No, I think they're on it. The security team went from all directions to figure out who, whose that is. But the, the point being, here's why Matthew starts out with these two. Because they're waiting for a king of the Jews, right? A forever king. They're waiting for one that is going to inherit the kingdom of God and rule over their kingdom of God forever, and this person 
from the prophecies is going to come from Abraham's body and it's going to come from David's own body. And so Matthew starts this gospel out and the first thing he wants you to know if we're talking about the people of Christmas, here's what you need to know. Point number one. I'm just now there. Point number one. The people of Christmas are the people of promise. They are the people that have been waiting on this promise and they've been hoping for this promise and they've been longing for this promise and they've been expecting this promise. And now Matthew comes on the scene, the first book of the New Testament, and the first thing he says is, Hey Jews, I got good news. This book is about Jesus Christ and He is the Son of David, the King of the Jews that you've been waiting on. And He is the son of Abraham, the one that is going to inherit the kingdom of God and rule over it and all of its people forever. And let me prove to you that this is who I say He is. And so then Matthew starts tracking down the lineage and he says Abraham was the son of and -and so-and-so was the son of. And so then we get this lineage that goes all the way down so that every Jew can now look at this and say, well... They're right. He did come from Abraham. He did come from David. And then the rest of the book is about the life that he lived and all that he done to prove that not only does he have the lineage, because there are other people that descended from Abraham and David, right? But not only does he have the lineage, he has the credentials too. He has proved that he has power over everything. The winds, the waves, sickness, death, no matter what it is, He has power over it. And this is that King that you've been waiting on. And so the people of Christmas are the people of promise. And so here's what you need to learn from that. God keeps His promises exactly the way that He said He would. He didn't sway from it to the left. He didn't sway from it to the right. God keeps His promises. And if you are a people of promise today and you are waiting on a promise, you can rest assured that if you kept it then, guess what? He's going to keep it again today. And that's important for us to understand. And we're going to get to that point here in a minute. Let me get to the second point real fast. Here's the second point. The people of Christmas are an excluded people in this world. You heard me, right? The people of Christmas are an excluded people in this world. They are people that a lot of this world would not include. They would exclude. I want you to pay attention to what Matthew does here. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 1 to see this. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Now listen, did Abraham have a good wife? Right. Very godly woman, right? Sarah, very godly woman. Did did Isaac have a good wife? Rebecca, very godly woman. Did, um, Did Jacob, Israel, have a good wife? He had Leah, who got deceived, he was deceived by. And then he ended up with Rachel. And both of them being good women, good godly women. But do you see their names here? Their names are not here, right? 
Alright, well let's just keep reading. Because maybe, maybe he just means he's not going to mention any women in this. Let's see. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. By Tamar. Hmm. So we have a mother mentioned here in this genealogy. And the first one we come to is a woman named Tamar. I don't know if you know much about Tamar, but let me tell you just a little bit about her. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. She was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. She was married to Judah's oldest son. Judah's oldest son died and left her a widow. In that culture, it was right for the brother, the next brother, to take that widow as his wife and to care for her. Well, that brother, the next brother, took her as a wife. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. God struck him dead. Now she's a widow again. And so Judah has another son. And here's what this other son says. He says, listen, this woman's, this woman's men don't fare well. So, um, you know, Dad, I, I'm not really that interested. And so Judah, even though he knows that it is the law, that it is right for him to take it, he tells Tamar, he says, listen, wait until he gets a little older, and when he gets old enough, he'll take you as a wife. She, so she goes back to her father's house to live under her father's care until this boy gets old enough to take, take her as a wife. But then there comes a day when this boy is old enough and Judah hasn't fulfilled his promise. Judah's wife dies. Judah is traveling back to a friend's country and along the way Tamar poses as a prostitute. And while she's posing as a prostitute, Judah comes by Judah's wife has just died. He's looking for a little comfort. So he comes and he, he uh, petitions her. And so she says, okay, what will you give me? And he says, well, I'll, give you, I'll send you a young goat and something else. I can't remember exactly what it was. But she said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. You give me your signet, I think it was a ring. You give me your signet ring. You give me your staff. And you give me your cord, I believe it was. And then when you send the goat, I'll send it back to you. Judah says, okay. Now she's covered herself with a veil, so he don't know who she is. Well then, she becomes pregnant by him. Judah tries to send the goat, but they can't find her. Matter of fact, Judah said, well, she's the prostitute that sits out by the, the gate. And these guys say, well, there ain't no prostitute that sits by the gate. We don't know what you're talking about. And Judah says, well, I tried. And so... Then Judah hears from some of his family that Tamar has played the harlot and she's pregnant. So Judah says, bring her out, we're going to burn her. And so they bring her out and she says before they burn her, she says, go tell your master that to the one whom these things belong, he is the father of these children. And she gives the signet ring, the staff, and the cord. And they take them to Judah. And Judah gets them and he looks at them and he says, She has been much more righteous than I. And he doesn't do anything. But here's the point. Sarah was a good woman. Rebecca was a good woman. Leah, Rachel, good woman. None of them got included. Why all of a sudden do we get to this part in the genealogy of Jesus and he says, Judah's the father of Perez and Terah. They were twins, by the way. 
Judah is the father of Perez and, and Zerah by Tamar. By Tamar. What is Matthew trying to say here? Well, it would be easy for me to just say, well, he's trying to make this point, but let's go a little further to see if I'm correct. And so next he says that um, Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by... By who? Anybody know anything about Rahab? What was Rahab for a living? Interesting, right? Let's keep reading to see if we can make any other connections. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by... Anybody know anything about Ruth? Moabite. Not a Jew. Not one that is a seed of Abraham. She's a Moabite. She's not even a part of the people of God. At first, she becomes a part of it. Alright, let's keep on reading. <clears throat> and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by... By who? The wife of, of who? Anybody know that story? Who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. Was Bathsheba single and able to be married to David and have a child by him? Anybody know that plot? Man, that would be, that would be a Discovery ID special today. <clears throat> I'm just telling you. Forensic files, something. Here's the point. Out of all the people mentioned, the only women that are even included in this genealogy are prostitutes, non-Jewish people, and people caught up in adulterous, murderous affairs. What does that tell you that Matthew is trying to let you know about the people of Christmas? The people of Christmas are people that the world would exclude. That we would look at and go, there's no way they would ever be children of God. They can't be included. They're not good enough. <laughs> and here's what Matthew wants you to understand, Jewish people, is what he's talking to them, but he wants us to understand it today too. God includes those that we would exclude. So what do we learn from that? Well, here's one thing that you can learn. There is no one that is too far away from the reach of God. Amen. There is no one that if they should hear the good news of the gospel and put their faith and trust in what God has done through Jesus Christ, there is no one outside of the reach of God's grace outside of the reach of God's salvation. Amen. I love what I believe it was Isaiah said. He said, Is the Lord's arm shortened that He cannot save? Is he, is he wanting to save somebody, but He says, Man, my arm just ain't long enough. I just can't quite get to you. No. The Lord's arm is not shortened. And He includes all those that we would exclude. Amen. 
You know, we could learn a lesson from that today, couldn't we? We could learn a lesson from that today. The third people of Christmas. <clears throat> I wished I had another hour. Y'all ain't going to give it to me, but <clears throat> I wish I had it. <clears throat> the third people of Christmas are a future people. A future people. Skip down with me to, uh, or actually, no, let's just start, let's go with verse 1 again. We've hung out there a little while. Let's start with verse 1 again. Notice it says here, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now let's just stop right there. There's only one other place in the Bible that that phrase is said in the same way. Now not every translation translates the same, but whether you're looking at Hebrew or Greek, it's the same phrase. And the only other place in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, I believe it is. Did I give you that one? Genesis chapter 5 verse 1, this is what it says. <clears throat> this is the book of the what? The generations of who? So in Genesis chapter 5, here's what God does through Moses, writing in Genesis chapter 5 all the way to the end of the Old Testament. He says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is the book of everybody that is a seed and an offspring of Adam. And then when you get to, Gen to Matthew chapter 1, he opens up the New Testament and he begins it with the same phrase. And he says, guys listen, this is the book of the genealogy or the generations. If you have another translation, it translated generations too. This is the book of the genealogy or generations of Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is that this book is not complete. It's still being written today. This book is still open. There are still people that are coming in. That This book is being written right now before our very eyes. Right now, this morning, the gospel is being preached somewhere and this book is evermore increasing. Little bit by little bit. Because you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no other place to be. You belong in one of those two places. You're either His offspring or you're Christ's offspring. And so the people of Christmas are a future people. But now go down with me in Matthew chapter 1 to verse um, 17. And look what He does here. This is my last point. So for those of you who think I'm going to keep you here all day, this is the end of it. Verse 17 says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And what you need to understand, if you'll go back through there and count the names, it's not that, it's not that every generation is listed in this genealogy. But he's just telling you that when I went from Abraham to David, it was 14 generations. When I went from this to the deportation of Babylon, it was 14 generations. When I went from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, it was 14 generations. Go back and count them and you'll see it. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now total, that's 42 generations, and that's not all the time that came between the time of Abraham and the time of Christ. That's not all the time that came when the promise was given to Adam in the garden to the time of Christ. 
It was somewhere around 2,000 years is what they say from Abraham to Christ. 2,000 years. Did y'all hear what I just said? God made a promise. And it took Him 2,000 years to fulfill it. So what do we learn from that? We almost there. We almost there. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole thing. <clears throat> but in 2 Peter chapter 3, let's just skip down to verse <clears throat> 4. There are scoffers, and they're asking the question. Here's what they're asking. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Where is He at? He promised this 2,000 years ago, guys. Think by now, maybe He's just not coming. Well, this was only 60 years after He made the promise. Some 60 years. And there were already people going, where is He at? Said He's coming back. It's been 60 years. And then they go on and they say this, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, or ever since our forefathers died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, nothing's changed. The sun still comes up, the sun still goes down. It still comes out of the east, it still sets in the west. People still build, plant, grow, uh, get married, have children. Everything stayed exactly the same. And then look what he says next in verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the Word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with, with water. Talking about the flood. <coughs> and it perished. By, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So what's he saying? He's saying that you think it stayed the same? You're forgetting one fact. You're forgetting the flood. <laughs> You're forgetting that things ain't stayed the same. No, God reached a point to where He said, It's time. And He came in the form of a flood, and He wiped this thing out. And the only ones that were saved were who? The ones that were in the ark. And here's what Peter is trying to tell these scoffers. God is not slow concerning His promise. Go on down with me where He says this. Finish it up. In verse um, 8. Let's go with verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so here's what we can learn from the people of Christmas. It may take 2,000 years for God to fulfill a promise, but don't forget this. He ain't showed you that He ain't here. Look back at the flood. He ain't showed you that He ain't holding accountable. Look back at the flood. But also don't forget, your time is not like God's time. You look at this thing and you see a thousand years. Guess what? To God? It's only been two days. On the third day, you know what happened? 
God is not slow concerning His promise. Y'all with me this morning? He's not slack. But let me tell you what He is. He's patient. And He's patient toward you. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That all should come in. And so here we see that the people of Christmas are a future people. It may take another 2,000 years for all we know. It may take another one day for all we know. But what you can rest, in, rest assured in is that God is going to keep His promise just like He did back then. And when He does, this creation that's here now is being stored up for fire, not water. And He's coming with judgment. And He is coming to redeem those that are in Christ. Whoever's in the ark of Christ, they're going to make it out of here. And they are a future people. And He's waiting. And He's patient. And he is, he is just waiting until the last one comes in. And He knows who they are. Don't think He don't know. He knows whether you are going to be in the ark or not. And all He's doing is waiting for the last one that is going to come in. When He comes in or she comes in, guess what? It's time. It's time. The people of Christmas are a people of promise. And God keeps His promises. The people of Christmas are an excluded people because God's arm is not too short to include those that we would exclude. The people of Christmas are a future people and He is patiently waiting for you to come in. My question to you is, are you ready? He came the first time exactly like He said He would. And trust me, He is coming again exactly like He said He is. And my question to you is, are you in the ark of Christ? Have you confessed Him as your Lord and your Savior? Have you repented from your sin to follow Him? And do you know that your faith is in Him and it's evident by the life that you live? If you can't see that this morning, maybe you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, but your life's not showing much evidence that you're in the ark. Why don't you make this morning your starting point of humbling yourself before Him and just repenting? God, I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. <laughs> I need your guidance. I, I need your, your long arm to reach down and pull me back out. Help me see the light so I can get back where I belong. Or maybe this morning you're one that you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Guys, I don't care who's here. I don't care who's sitting beside you. I don't care, I don't care where you are. I'm telling you, Jesus is coming again. And my job is to help get you ready for that. I pray this morning be the morning you come take me by the hand. Preacher, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But I need and I want to be in Christ. And let me help you with that this morning. Whatever your need is this morning, if y'all would stand, this is the time. You ain't got to wait on no music to be played. This ain't about a song. This ain't about stirring your emotion. The Word of God has been spoken. If this applies to you, I pray you would step out and you would come and you would respond now. Whatever you need, right now is the time.